This morning we continue our summer in the Psalms, and this morning we will be looking at Psalm chapter 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over your works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet. All the flocks and herds, all the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. As we consider Psalm 8 this morning, just want to remind you that all the Psalms have different genres. Most of them are lament, and which is why whether you're a person of faith or non-faith, the Psalms seem to resonate with the humanity because they get in touch with how hard it is to be human. And the Psalms of lament are sort of dialed down to one. This is a psalm of praise, which on the emotional spectrum is way up at 11. This is a John Williams score. This is dialing it up, putting the subwoofer to max. This is declaring the goodness of God in a way that's just like blasting through the brass section of the orchestra. And in the middle of this poetry, David, who wrote this psalm, he uses the poetry to ask some pretty deeply philosophical questions about humanity. He's staring into the cosmos, the vastness, and as he's captivated by the stars in the night sky, he's like, what is it to be human? What does it mean to be human? I feel like a speck in this expanse, and yet there's this God that cares for me. How is this possible? And what does this all mean? What is of true meaning and value, and where is my life going, and He's just asking how it is possible that in this great vastness that this transcendent God could have this imminent care. And the psalm begins in verse 1 by saying, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. You've set your glory above the heavens. Uh, And in the Hebrew, the Lord, our Lord, is Adonai Yahweh, which is a covenant name for God, meaning loving promise keeper. So as David looks out into the stars and then the first words that blast out of his soul are like this response to who God is, we're reminded of who our God is, a loving promise keeper. Our God is not a distant deity who's hungry for power. He's not a distant deity who was somehow alone in the cosmos and got bored and then created humanity so that we could sort of be like his pets And he's just this powerful being that wants loyal subjects. It's not the God. We're reminded of who our God is. He's a Trinitarian God, a Father, Son, and Spirit. A mystery to be sure. But because our God is Trinitarian, it means that before there was anything, he was complete and loving within himself. That all that is was spun from love. Which is why the most important thing to us as humans is love. And the most catastrophic thing that we experience in life is the loss of love. Our God is a God of love. And it was from his love, the Adonai Yahweh, this promise keeper, this loving God, 
that moved first behind the cosmos and that everything that is has come from our God who brought everything from nothing. And in verse 2, he shifts the poetry from this vast image of the, the heavens or the skies, you could say in Hebrew, the skies, the, the cosmos, uh, to something very small, infants, out of the mouth of babes. We go from like this, the, from the massive to the infant. It's an amazing picture of how in the span of just a few verses of poetry, we're provoked to see how God's power and glory is not only revealed in the most majestic things, but also in the weakest of things. And God using small and weak things to declare his glory is not something new. It's actually something that's repeated through Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul, sort of as a Hebrew scholar and as a historian and as, a, as one who sees that Jesus Christ is the culmination of God's promise throughout human history, Paul looks back in 1 Corinthians uh, 27 and he says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those that are mighty. How did he do that? Well, just zoom out from this psalm just for a quick second, then we'll go back to the psalm. In the Gospels in Matthew 21, before Jesus Christ goes to be crucified on a Roman cross, He's going into Jerusalem and he's riding on this donkey, an image of the king that nobody would have expected because he's not a warrior on a war horse who's looking to shed his enemy's blood. He's humbly in civilian clothing on a donkey about to go and shed his own blood. This is our God. And on his way in, all the children, those of you who've been in church for a while, you'll remember, the children shouted, Hosanna! Which is a way of saying, praise to God, the Messiah has come. Praise to God, the Savior is here. Hosanna. It's, a, it's like a political Davidic sort of statement where it's like, the king is here. Which is pretty threatening when there is a king in power. And you're saying, the king is here. And in hearing the children saying that the king is here, Jesus quotes this psalm. Jesus quotes it to the Pharisees, because the Pharisees get upset. The religious leaders are like, hey, keep the children quiet. We don't like what they're saying. And Jesus looks the religious leaders in the eye, and he quotes this psalm that we just read. And he says, out of the mouth of babes, you've perfected praise to silence the enemy. And by applying Psalm 8 to himself, he's declaring who he is, the God of the heavens. And he's declaring who the religious leaders are, his enemy. Yikes. Why is that? Well, it's not because God is bloodthirsty and he wants to eradicate people. It's because the religious leaders who were supposed to convey the heart of God 100% misrepresented the heart of God. And not only that, but they, instead of being a nation that was supposed to bless the other nations, they became insular And they actually had a lot of disdain for the other nations. So what God had wanted from the beginning, which is to choose the nation of Israel and his people to be like priests, to bless and to draw the other nations to the grace of the saving God, those religious leaders became nothing like God. And so Jesus quotes this psalm of Psalm 8 to himself, this strong God who himself became weak and vulnerable. He came to save the weak and the vulnerable. He died on the cross like one who was weak and vulnerable. And in his love and grace, this strong God of the cosmos of the heavens, he unites himself to the weak, which is us, 
Because weak people are the only kind there are. Humans, frail, fragile. Cosmically speaking, lifespans like fruit flies. And he unites himself to us so that we, the weak, we can say in our moments of weakness, in him I'm strong. The cross was a sign of guilt and shame, failure and death. And that's the sign that God chose, confounding the wise with the foolish things. That's what he picked. God took the symbol of guilt and shame and failure and death, and he made it a symbol of liberty, freedom, and life, and we wear it like jewelry now. He takes the foolish things, confounds the wise. And then the poetry goes on to verses 3, 4, and 5, and this is actually where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. The text says, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You crown them with glory and honor. And uh, if you're here this morning and you're exploring Christian faith, I would invite you to consider, as many have, that to be a person of science and to be a person of faith are not at odds. To be an, uh, a person who appreciates this world around us and exploring it in deep, uh, with a deep commitment to the scientific disciplines and to be a person who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a person of faith, these things are not at odds. Faith and reason are friends. When I'm invited to speak on campus at Waterloo with the various student groups and they'll invite their friends to come who are different walks of life, non-faith or what have you, I'll often talk about how you know, faith and reason are friends. Uh, we don't need to check our brains at the door to believe in the God of the heavens. In fact, the more deeply we move into the disciplines of science... I'm going to stay in my lane, of course, as a theologian, but I'm just going to dip my toe over here real quick to say the more deeply that you move into the disciplines of science, the more you are confronted with mind-boggling precision and order and wonder, and we don't look at the universe and deduce that it operates at random. The more deeply we look at it, the more clearly the universe seems to operate as if it knew we were coming. Uh, There's a... a well-known scientist named Francis Collins, who was a famous geneticist because he had covered, uncovered some profound discoveries in the study of genes, that uh, over time he uh, oversaw the Genome Project for around 12 years, decoding DNA and doing a number of other things that I'm not qualified to explain or understand. But Francis Collins is a profound man of science, and he believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's a man of faith. Collins wrote a book called The Language of God, and as I was reading through his work, I was just struck by the way in which he, the more deeply he looked into human DNA, the more deeply he looked at the world that we live in, the God of the heavens, the vastness, the ones that has, that has spun the cosmos into existence, Collins had concluded that we're not here by chance. And I, so for those of you who are exploring and considering Christian faith this morning, I, did, I, I would invite you to, to, um, to consider that. Faith and reason are friends. And many of us have, in this room, members of this church, have been in that journey ourselves of wrestling with those things. Uh, Anthony Flew is one of the uh, most published, well, arguably one of the most published uh, philosophers of the modern era. And uh, recently, and well, recently, at the end of his life, he uh, was like 2004 or something, 
He wrote a book called There Is a God, because earlier in his career as an atheist, he had wrote a book called There Is No God, and had, so that had been his position his whole life. But then in the end, uh, he conceded that there was reason behind the universe, a divine designer, if you will. And one of the illustrations that Flew gave, I think, that sort of speaks to this poetry of David looking into the stars and then being sort of consumed with a sense of smallness in God's bigness, Flew said that uh, if you go to a personalized hotel, you might conclude after a few coincidences that, it, that it's coincidence. You, go, you check into your room and the room is your favorite color. That's a coincidence. And then you look in the mini bar and all of your favorite things are there. That could be a coincidence. And you go to order your food and you look at the menu, but there's only, uh, uh, you know, you can't order off menu. It's just like there's a couple options. But then when you look at the options, breakfast, lunch, dinner, nightcap, everything is precisely what you would have ordered. It's perfect. Flew said, you can't go to a personalized hotel and encounter very many coincidences before you conclude that it's more reasonable that somebody was expecting you. Somebody was planning on your arrival. Somebody had worked things out to your enjoyment. And the God of the cosmos has worked things out, not only to sustain human life in a purely academic sense, but that he loves us. And that's what David is wondering about. The God of tremendous transcendence that could actually love us. And so, if you are exploring Christian faith this morning, this ancient psalm, it, it invites you to consider this first cause behind all that exists. It, it invites you to consider the God of all scripture, uh, who not only remained abstract, but became very concrete by wrapping himself in the clothing of his, and the dirt of his own creation, who came in Jesus Christ, who wrote himself irreversibly into human history. Whereby, whether it's Roman antiquity or the Babylonian Talmud or the New Testament Bible, we know that in 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, the Roman cross, that Jesus Christ was crucified, and that three days later, that tomb was empty. And that it wasn't thousands upon thousands of years as a legend slowly evolved that people started worshipping this Jesus. It was overnight that the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans abandoned their worldviews and worshipped Jesus Christ as king. And that warrants an, eye, an eyebrow raise and a pause from sociologists and historians all around the world at how overnight Jesus Christ, this lowly carpenter for some backwater town that nobody had ever heard of, changed the world. That's what the psalm is inviting us to consider. How this grand God had come to love us. So I want us to consider a few things I think that the psalm gives us this morning. Um, three things. You might be wondering if there's more than three. There's not. There's never more than three things that the scriptures teach at one time. I'm kidding. It's, it's because you're stuck with me and I'm a simple man. And I just take all of the multitude of things and categorize them. So the three things we're going to look at this morning is um, that we're given a divine identity that promotes civility and dignity. That's the first thing we're given, this divine identity. Second thing I think the psalm provokes is to see that we are given a pathway to contentment. And then lastly, we're given a confidence-inspiring promise. So first, this divine identity. It promotes civility and dignity because all people bear the image of God. If we understand that we are not only God's creation, but his children, that means that Everyone we encounter deserves dignity and should be treated with civility because they are image bearers of God. Christian, non-Christian, atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Hindu. It doesn't matter who they are. We ought to relate to them the sense of civility and dignity because we recognize we are image bearers of God. This 
phrase crowned with glory and honor is an echo from Genesis 1.26 of being made in the image of God. This is our basis for saying that everyone has intrinsic value, regardless of their culture, their class, or their creed. As Christians, this divine identity, this is our basis for being civil with those who don't agree with anything we say. Whether that's a political conversation, whether it's an economic conversation, whether it's a spiritual conversation, a religious conversation, this is our basis for really relating to people with dignity who don't seemingly don't have any common ground with us at all. Today, discourse that's civil, it seems like it's increasingly rare. We seem to live at a time where we're more comfortable making caricatures of people's positions. There's straw men flying everywhere. And the way to win the argument is to make sure that the memes abound. And if that doesn't work, then we start to say that people whose ideologies are different than ours, those people are dangerous. That is dangerous. Oh my goodness, if you vote for those people with that particular view of how the city ought to run, that is dangerous. And so that is sort of the death of civility. It becomes increasingly difficult to have discourse. And what is the driving force behind all of uh, the things that we experience in perhaps the, ra- you know, the rage culture that is the graceless vacuum of the internet? What is behind? What could be the driving force? It's, it's layered and complex, but because I'm a simple person, I'm going to say insecurity. If you are gripped with a sense of insecurity, if at a soul level you grapple with If your identity is insecure, it is going to be very difficult to be civil and to give people dignity. Because to the degree that they oppose your ideology, it's not just a conversation around ideology. Political ethics, sexual ethics, pick, pick the topic. It's not really just a discussion about that. It's like it's an attack on the core of who you are. It's an attack on your identity. And it is extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to treat people with civility when at the core we're chronically plagued with insecurity. But when we see that everybody is an image bearer of God, this ought to change the way in which we relate to them. So I think we're given divine identity here. And David looks out and he sees who God is and he sees who he is in relation to who God is. It ought to change the way that our day-to-day is because... The divine identity of Psalm 8 gives us a soul-stabilizing effect. Seeing everybody as an image-bearer of God, this is our, our basis for Christian ethics about human life. It's why, as Christians, we regard human life in a particular way. We regard it as God-ordained. We regard it as not something that we determine. We sit back from human life and we regard it as sacred, whether it's an unborn infant in the womb, whether it's an elderly person at the end of their life in palliative care whether it's a person struggling with tremendous suffering in their body or in their mind. It's why we relate to that as Christians. The Word of God guides us in relating to those things as they're image bearers of God. They've been crowned with glory and with honor. Our faith in God, this divine identity, it changes our view on suffering. It should change our view on suffering. I know that everything I'm about to say is on a collision course with uh, the prevailing ideologies of our city. And that's okay. We, ought, we want to uh, treat folks who don't agree with anything I'm about to say with dignity and civility. But as believers, I'm not, I'm not called to pastor the city. I'm called to pastor you. 
And so the Word of God changes our view on suffering. Nobody goes through life without suffering. I think a good question for us to ask as humans is, what is the role of suffering in my life? And as North Americans in comfy southern Ontario, perhaps your answer to that is, no, role, suffering shouldn't have a role in my life. No, it does. You're a human, and nobody gets out of this thing alive. So what is the role of suffering in your life? You see, without the divine identity, I, I think that suffering can be an unstoppable tyrant. Suffering can be an unstoppable tyrant that steals our hope. But church, as you and I continually and repeatedly turn to God, sit in our divine identity of God, suffering pushes us toward him. The very source of resilience, the very source of hope. If we suffer from amnesia as it relates to our divine identity, suffering can elevate itself and assert itself as the reason to end our life. There's too much suffering. But as we sit in divine identity, as we sit in security that we are loved by our God, that we are here, our very life is in his hands, that the terrible things, the sorrowful things, the sad things, suffering pushes us toward our ultimate source of comfort, our ultimate source of soul quiet, pushes us toward the one who is not only with us in the suffering of our life, but in the end, resurrects our very life. But in the end of the Christian worldview is not darkness and death, it is life and it is light with our God. And this divine identity leads us, I think, to the next thing, which is that we're given a pathway to contentment. Pathway to contentment, the pathway is the communion with God. That's why every seven days we stop what we're doing. We stop work, we stop everything, and we come and we gather, and we get curved back out of ourselves, and we get curved back out of the last six days of the, the onslaught of sorrows that is the human condition. And we are reminded that in the end, there is hope. And not only that, we don't just cross our fingers and say, well, we'll wait for that day. But it infuses us with resilience and strength for the day to day. The pathway to contentment. We are created as image bearers of God, but we are also created for life with God. That is a nonstop conversation in all the children's classrooms. It's in their catechisms. Susan constantly saying it to them. If Susan's up here and your children in the class and Susan says, Kids, we were created because God wants, and all the kids are going to yell, to be with us. All the kids are going to yell it because that is the pathway to contentment. I want to draw your attention to some carefully chosen words in verse uh, 5. We were created a little lower than the angels. What in the world does that mean? A little lower than the angels. We're created in the image of God. In the Hebrew, it is, it is uh, Mechat Elohim. Mechat, a little lower, a little smaller. Mechat could also be almost. So you could translate it. We are created almost God. That makes English translators nervous, which is, I, I, I think, as you read vast Hebrew scholarship, that's why they said a little lower than the angels, because then at least people wouldn't get crazy, saying, oh, I'm, a little, I'm a little God. But what's trying to be conveyed in this, saying you've created us a little less than God, is not only were we created in the image of God, 
but we're actually created for this communion and this life with God. That means the way we relate to vocation and recreation and relationships and romance and friendship and the work that we do and the office that we go to, like everything, life on our street, wanting to see the city flourish, engaging in community, all of it is supposed to be wrapped up in this greater thing. That's all penultimate, but the ultimate thing is the communion with our God, which then puts everything, all these other things in their place. But the forsaking of God means the penultimate becomes the ultimate, and that is the kiss of death to contentment, because you were made for more. And therefore, to elevate, ah, well, no, there is no God. That's foolish. That's for silly, unintelligent people. I have chosen to make my career my God, my relationships my God, my this my God. And I know I'm using religious language, but if you wake up and say, I'm going to orient my life around this thing that has gravitational pull, one of two things will happen. It will crush you, crush your contentment by its utter inability to alleviate the relentless hunger in your soul or you will crush it, or you will crush that person by putting godlike expectations on it or them for your contentment. And this is, the, this is the crux of the human condition as it relates to our lack of contentment. He says we're made a little lower than... And the reason I'm drawing your attention to that is because the prevailing conversation for many of, of our family and friends is we were made a little higher than the animals. There's the animals and then there's us. We're a little higher than the animals. Some people would say, now we're not higher than the animals. We're the same as the animals. We're just bigger brained animals. We can reason better than the animals. We, but, but really, there's no God. And because there's no God, we are a little higher than the animals. I want you to just sit in the gravity of that gap as it relates to your worldview. You and your children and everybody you love are just a little higher than the animals or you are... A little, you've been given your dignity or a little lower than God. Here's how that plays out. How do animals operate? Instinct, impulse, animalistic appetite. They're just driven around by their appetites. What could the possible folly of humanity be if we all operated in relationships and politics and fill in the blank like we're just a little higher than the animals? I'm just led by my impulse, my desire, my appetite, the thing that I think it must be right. It has to be right because I want it. How could it possibly be wrong? How dare there be a God that could say, no, 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 no. Elevate your desires and, and put everything else in and allocate it with your worship being me and not these other things. To borrow from the uh, North African uh, theologian Augustine, he said, I can love the right things, I can love the wrong things, but I can also love the right things in the wrong way, which I think is the category that most of us live our lives. Our relationships and our friendships and our vocations and our recreations and all of these things are good things. That's the right things, but you can love it in the wrong way. That's the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He's having an existential crisis. Vanity, vanity, it's all vanity. Hevel, hevel in the Hebrew, it's just smoke. We all pontificate on what matters and meaning. And then in a thousand years, what? Nobody knows. Nobody's living their life by our values. They don't even know our name. And he has an existential crisis. But if you dial it all back and realize, oh, no, wait a minute. I'm given this glorious pathway to contentment by ongoing communion with my God. Let that be the framework for our worship. That's why you come on Sunday. 
That's why in your home you meditate on scripture. That's why if you happen to have children, it's like you want your children to love God and love his ways and understand his ways and take him through the scriptures. Not just some sort of collocation of ancient books, but a narrative of how the God of the cosmos wrote himself into human history in Jesus Christ to do what we could not do for ourselves. It was just to realign us. The gospel is not that in the end, you know, you trust in Jesus Christ and then in the end and you die, we're just zap fried out of here to some ethereal place we can't wrap around called heaven. It's the restoration of what humanity craves. It's the restoration of this earth. It's the restoration of our bodies. This is the significance of the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's this uh, great musical called The Greatest Showman. It's starring Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson. It's excellent. And Rebecca Ferguson's character sings this great song called Never Enough. It's by Leon Alred. And one of the lines from the song that she sings is, All the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky, will never be enough, will never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough. And she's just, what a great song. As it puts words to the condition of the human soul, this chronic, insatiable appetite. But the pathway to contentment, is to trust and to turn to our God. We were made by him and for him. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about it as the secret. He says, I found the secret. I know what it's like to be on top, on the bottom. Have a lot, have nothing. I found the secret to contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he says in 4, uh, verses 12 and 13. It's this, the pathway to this contentment. Of this trust and this worship of God. It is oxygen. This is the framework for our Christian disciplines. We don't do anything that we do in the hopes that God will love us and like us and approve of us. We worship and meditate on scripture and pray and we do all of these things precisely because he already loves us and accepts us in Christ. And these, this is the need of unraveling our souls out of the discontentment, out of the idle factories in the heart. To elevate the wrong thing so that we can truly experience quiet in the soul. Last thing is this. We're given confidence-inspiring promise. And the confidence-inspiring promise of Psalm 8 is God is not vaguely aware of you. He has mindful, focused care for you. It says that he is mindful of us. What is, what is mankind? What is, human, what is it to be human that you are mindful of us? You care about us. And yet he does. You know, there's a a documentary on Netflix right now called Senior by Robert Downey Jr. And he did it with his dad. His dad was in the late stages of his life. And uh, his dad actually died during the filming of the documentary. And he's just really gritty and raw about his relationship. It's 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 just an interesting human story. And at one point as he's grappling with the death of his dad, he says, We're here. We do stuff. And we die. That's it. We're here. We do stuff. And we're gone. That's what it is to be human. And in a, a lot of people, that's the prevailing ideology. But in great stark contrast to that, I think we've got to ask ourselves a question. Is that psychologically and emotionally satisfying? I'm glad the world doesn't actually operate and live in this crazy nihilism. Like, I'm glad we don't live like that's true. And I've been, as a minister, to many funerals, not just of Christians, but of 
atheists and agnostics and people who are spiritual but they weren't sure what they believed in. I can tell you firsthand, having been to many funerals of people who, when they're, when they're staring death in the face, the way that they talk about what happens after death is always, like, it's, it, it's just such a dislook. It, it, it's so discomforting. They'll, they'll talk about the deceased like, well, they're looking down on us or they're in all of us or they're around us or they'll be remembered by us or they're... They're not sure where and how and what, but the, in the Christian worldview, there is a tremendous confidence-inspiring promise here. We are the children of God. We've given the dignity of God. The pathway of commitment is communion with God, and He is mindful of us. And the, in the end is resurrection, not just, a, not, not just a ethereal experience that we can't wrap our minds around. That's why Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily. And this reminds us that because God is not just vaguely aware of who we are, the Gospels give us language to be mindful that as we're going into the challenges of Monday morning, he says, look at the birds, look at the flowers. God's caring for them. He's got you. You're way more valuable than the birds. You're way more valuable than the flowers. He has you. Jesus uses this hyperbolic language. He says, he knows the number of hairs on your head. God knows the number of hairs on your head. If you get a massive haircut and you do a fade like I did on my holidays, he just does the subtractions, figured it all out. It's hyperbolic, but but the point of it is he's saying he knows you, he loves you, he cares for you. This infinite, transcendent God who has particular care. And so as I close, I want to encourage you that as David was marveling at God's greatness and he saw his own smallness, he finds great rest there. As you contemplate God's greatness and your smallness, as you turn to Him, repeatedly turn to Him, you will find great rest there. On Sundays, on the Lord's Day, and every day. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Let's pray.